0: Welcome to Healthcare Rounds, the podcast serving you the ins and outs of health policy and business topics, as well as our take on the rapidly evolving healthcare delivery ecosystem. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and faculty associate at the W.P. Carey School of Business and the College of Health Solutions at Arizona State University. My guest this week is Christopher
1: Robertson. Chris is Associate Dean for Research and Innovation and Professor of Law at the University of Arizona. He is also Research Director for the Health Law Monitoring Committee of the Uniform Law Commission and a principal with Hugo Analytics, a provider of scientific services to litigators. In 2019, Harvard University Press published his book, Exposed, Why Our Health Insurance is Incomplete and What Can Be Done About It. Robertson has co-edited two prior books, Nudging Health, Behavioral Economics, and Health Law in 2016, and Blinding as a Solution to Bias, Strengthening Biomedical Science, Forensic Science, and Law, also in 2016.
0: Robertson graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School and earned a doctorate in philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis. He has taught at Harvard Law School,
1: NYU Law, and the London School of Economics, he will join Boston University in the fall 2020. Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Chris Robertson is the author of Exposed: Why Our Health Insurance Is Incomplete and What Can Be Done About It. So, I will have already read in your bio, Chris through the magic of podcast, but in your words, just uh, maybe orient our audience, tell us a little bit about your your background before we get into things.
2: Sure. I've been working on health policy and health insurance for about a decade, bringing both a bioethics and a health law and health policy perspective, originally starting researching how medical problems were leading to bankruptcies and foreclosures, doing some litigation around hospitals overcharging uninsured patients, and more recently, a series of research studies about health insurance and, and how we ended up with the healthcare system that we have here in the United States.
1: Right. Great. The big question, I think I thought of this originally as, a, as an easy question, but I, but I think it's a big question. That is, explain to me how health insurance works in this country and, and what you see are the major design flaws. Sure.
2: You know, even to begin to answer the question about health insurance really has to start from a recognition that it's fragmented in the U.S. We've divided up, you know, the 330 million Americans into the the older Americans that are getting care through the public system called Medicare, Uh, working age Americans, most of whom are getting insurance through their employers, Um, others that are working for smaller employers or self-employed or unemployed are getting care and health insurance coverage from the individual markets. And finally, we have poorer Americans getting care through Medicaid, even that system varies state by state as to whether they've expanded it, et cetera. And then there are a series of other health insurance programs for Native Americans or military families, et cetera. But once you see that we have this fragmentation of health insurance coverage, you can then look at, at the types of plans that we have. And one of the striking features of American health insurance is huge cost exposures. By cost exposures, I mean copays, deductibles, and other things that are sometimes called out-of-pocket payments Although even that's a euphemism sometimes, because patients simply don't have money in their pockets to pay large portions of their care. So in my view, that's the the primary design flaw is that we've actually made health insurance incomplete. It doesn't actually cover all of our needs reliably or predictably. So explain
1: to me the logic or maybe the the definition you'd mentioned, uh, I think deductibles, co-payments, co-insurance. I saw in in your book there was the George Lowenstein study of people who thought they were very educated about these terms, and turns out not so. So maybe give us a little lesson on on what those things are and what their purpose is in our insurance system. Sure. Well,
2: um, I like to think of it as three zones of insurance where in any given year, even if you have health insurance, if you have a deductible in your policy, that means the first X amount of money, let's say $3,000 for a family uh, would be quite common, that first 3,000 of spending comes completely out of pocket, which actually means you don't have insurance coverage for that first $3,000 of care. So that's zone one, no insurance. Once you've met that amount out of pocket, you move into what I call zone two, which is some insurance. And typically in this second zone, uh, when you go uh, incur medical costs, the insurer is going to pay about 80% of them, and you're going to pay about 20% of them. Now, the actual ratios vary because we have both co-pays, which are fixed dollar amounts, like $450 per day in the hospital or $50 to go to a specialist physician. But then we also have coinsurance, which is a percent of charges uh, after adjustment. So we have those two features in the zone two, some insurance. And then there's a third zone called full insurance um, once you've passed what's called your out of pocket maximum. Now, before the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, not all plans even had an out of pocket maximum. And in fact, in Medicare, there is no out of pocket maximum. You can keep paying that 20% forever. But in employer based plans and plans on the individual market, There's a cap on how much you can be forced to pay in a given year until full insurance kicks in. And that out-of-pocket cap ends up being really important. The Affordable Care Act allows it to be as high as $16,300 a year for a family, which is still a devastating amount of exposure, but that's at least where the cap starts. Now, the second part of your question is, well, what's the purpose of having all these um, exposures instead of making insurance complete? And it really goes back to an economic theory from the 1960s and 70s called moral hazard. And this is the theory that insurance is actually a problem. Insurance actually allows us to spend other people's money, OPM, so that when you go to the hospital, you might um, consume health care that's not really very valuable because you shrug your shoulders and say, well, I'm not paying for the care. The insurance pool is paying for it. And so the thought is that insurance is actually a huge driver of wasteful spending. This is a theory we can talk about. But so the antidote to this huge waste cost to insurance that's been theorized is to instead give patients some skin in the game, make them pay at least 20% of the cost so they'll feel and and, and thereby make better cost-benefit trade-offs. So we can talk more about the validity of that theory, but that's really the motivation as to why the U.S has over and over embraced incomplete insurance, which leaves people exposed to huge costs
1: so isn't the moral hazard isn't that what that first the first zone that you talked about isn't isn't that where you know at least so the theory would go is is that that you know that all of what you are doing up until the certain point will cost you money personally that maybe you're not going to go to the doctor if you're feeling just the sniffles or you know, you're going to think twice about having care because you know, just like, just like your car. You know, if you get in a fender bender and then you take it into the to the uh, shop and they say, well, it's going to cost 400 to fix, and then you think about it and you say, well, if I if I report this as an insurance claim, then my insurance is going to go up, and I've got a thousand dollar deductible, so I might as well just pay this out of pocket. Isn't that kind of like the same theory? That's exactly right.
2: And, and But the limitation of this theory is that if you look at aggregate health spending in the U.S., if you look at where most dollars are spent, it's not on the $1,000 course of care or the $50 specialist visit or filling that statin to keep your heart attack from happening. It's actually on the lung transplants and the patented cancer drugs and the huge catastrophic costs. Health spending is hugely concentrated. So giving people all this exposure to low dollar care, you know, causing them not to fill their prescription for that statin, can actually backfire because it causes them to have more high dollar care, which is going to be fully covered by insurance anyway. So this is really the, the fallacy of using cost exposure to manage health spending, is it puts the pressure on exactly the wrong costs. We actually want people getting preventative care. We want them filling their prescriptions to prevent heart attacks. But when they do have the heart attack and need that stent installed, there's no way we could expose them to substantial portion of those costs because it's just too much. No family could bear it out of pocket.
1: So, and I'm sure you have this buried in in your book, which, by the way, um, from what I have read, I haven't read the whole thing. It is outstanding. It ex- it's extremely well written. Uh, some of these kinds of books, I mean, you got it's like a slog to get through them. I really have enjoyed reading. So far, what I've read. So, congratulations on that. Well, thank you. I had some good editors that went through and
2: took out all the worst of the jargon, and uh, there's no equations. <laughs> <laughs> so, I had some good non scholars, um, you know, keep, keeping me clear.
1: Yeah, well, they, they served you well. Um, so, anyone who's interested in this topic is going to find this to be a very well researched and fascinating read. But anyway, back to the, the question is, does the existence of copays actually end up costing us more money in the long run? Have you researched that? Is there research on on that? So there's a
2: couple of different ways to approach it. Of course, you know, it's a very fragmented system. There's lots of different courses of care. It's going to have different effects in different places. But there's been a body of research that suggests that adding copays um, uh, and exposure does reduce healthcare consumption. But the problem is there's also been a lot of research that suggests that the reductions in consumptions are indiscriminate. Um, people um, reduce consumption for high-value care and low-value care alike. So it's almost like rolling a die, and if the die comes up six, saying, okay, you don't get that healthcare. Because in fact, people aren't very good at judging what is high-value or low-value care in the first place. That's why we go to doctors who are supposed to be the experts. So the second thought, uh, the second way to get at that question is to look internationally. In the U.S., we have some of the highest levels of cost exposures, the biggest deductibles and co-pays. You know, Other countries have entire sectors of their health care that have no cost exposures. But in the U.S., we sure are not getting a lot of value for what we spend. By that, I mean we're spending overall twice as much as other developed countries on our health care, even though we have these huge cost exposures that drive people into bankruptcies and foreclosures and cause them not to take their, their heart medicines. So it does not seem that cost exposure. If you look at all the evidence together, that cost exposure is a really good tool for reducing wasteful health spending.
1: So if the problem is that the way that we've structured these incentives isn't getting us what we want, what do the behavioral economists, or what does Chris Robertson say about uh, how to properly align incentives to get people to not seek low value care, but to ensure that they are, they're taking their meds, that they're doing the right things and that they're, they're accessing health care in the right way. Maybe I'm not asking that question exactly how I wanted to ask it, but you get the gist of what I'm, I'm getting at.
2: Well, first, I think from a policy perspective, you're trying to set up incentives like you said. From a policymaker perspective, we often don't really know what's high value or low value care for a particular patient. Even at a policy perspective, we're relying on the FDA, to approve a drug or device is safe and effective. We're relying on a physician to figure out which drug or device is appropriate for which patient. And so it's really hard for us from a policy perspective to say, even though the FDA has approved this, even though your physician has recommended it for you, we want to create a system that's designed for you to not do what your physician says, right? So I guess another way to put this is behaviorally, we've already set up at least these two gateways on a lot of health spending. The FDA and physicians, and then we also set up a third gateway, which is payers. Right, not all healthcare is covered by insurance. So when we've said it is covered, the, your doctor recommended and the FDA has approved it, but we still don't want you to consume it. That's a pretty tricky sort of moment to be in as a policymaker. Now there are some areas I think where the research suggests we should be nudging people away from certain care, for example, imaging for low back pain or antibiotics for what's probably a viral infection. Uh, and in areas like that, maybe there is a targeted role for a cost exposure to cause a patient to get a second opinion. And a, an example of that would be in pharmaceuticals. I don't mind having a cost exposure to nudge patients towards taking the generic rather than the patented brand name drug or the, the original uh, innovator drug, because as far as we know, they're chemically identical. So that's a great place where a cost exposure you can nudge someone to to higher-value, lower-priced care that's otherwise identical. But more generally, I think cost exposure puts the pressure on the wrong actor in the system because patients are not in the position to really assess value. The physicians are. So I would put a lot more pressure on adjusting physicians' incentives to make sure they're driving towards high-value care. And for that purpose, I like salaries. I like management. Um, some of the same tools we use in the rest of the world to make sure that our agents are, are reflecting the values and our own goals. So I would put a lot more pressure on physician conflicts of interest, relationships with the drug and device industries, fee-for-service payments that are really driving up care prices and costs in the U.S. Uh, that would be one of the main levers rather than focusing on patients' cost exposure across the board.
1: So you mentioned, I want to go back to something that you that you just said about generics versus brand name. And I, I think at least these days, I think 20 years ago, the pharma companies would you know, fight it out to continue to have their brand name prescribed even in the face of the generic. But I think that managed care in the 90s kind of took away a lot of that problem. I can't imagine a doctor writing for an antibiotic and saying, dispense is written. So a lot of that swap is is practically, for all practical purposes, automatic. But what I'm wondering is how effective in a formulary are those those different tiers to cover, you know, when you've got, let's say, $10 for a generic and then maybe $50, not for the brand of that generic, but maybe for a newer drug that's in the class, but isn't isn't an identical copy. So Are formularies, have you seen, are they effective in being able to keep costs down for the system?
2: Yeah, my physician friends tell me that, you know, sometimes there are actually differences between, you know, almost a dozen statins that are on the market. But sometimes it does make sense to, you know, rotate your patient through them until you find the one with the best side effect profile for them. And so in my view, it's important for physicians and doctors to be able to have that discretion. And so, you know, they do compete, especially when they're not identical chemical compounds on quality factors like side effects. So I worry about narrow formularies that are kind of crude in, in limiting options available to patients and their providers or creating huge what I call rationing through inconvenience, huge barriers that the physician can get that other drug but would have to spend an hour on the phone advocating for the patient that he's not going to get reimbursed for. So again, I would much rather see physicians working on salary and having you know, population-wide metrics of efficiency rather than saying you can never use drug A for your patient you know, unless you spend an hour on the phone fighting for it.
1: Yeah, well, unfortunately the way that we have things set up today, a lot of those drugs get put into different positions because of the rebates that they and the deals that they've struck with the PBMs and um, yeah, and
2: a lot of that has nothing to do with value for the patient, right?
1: It's it's right. it's really in
2: just another fragmentation of our healthcare system.
1: Yeah. So, given that we're talking on a on a Monday amidst the insanity of this coronavirus escalating, what does your research suggest that we should be, and maybe it doesn't suggest anything, but I was thinking about this before we got on this morning, that we should be doing in the face of the coronavirus, or maybe the way, maybe talk to the way that we're, maybe it's not an insurance question. I'm just curious about, I'm sure this has crossed your mind, as it is every American, is there something that we should be doing differently?
2: Sure. I, I think when you think about it from this economic personal finance lens, you know, some of the advice is that if you are likely to be suffering from COVID, but you are at an age range where you're uh, and don't have complications, you might well just write it out at home. And that's probably good for, the, for infectious disease and the healthcare system. And, and I have no fight with that. But, but when it is time for a patient to get care, I really want them focused on doing whatever their physician recommends. So if the physician does say, you know, on the phone, it's time to get you to the emergency room, I want that patient to show up and I want that patient to get the care. And so the cost exposures associated with showing up in the emergency room can really distort the decisions a patient makes. So there's this amazing exchange by Congressman Katie Porter and the head of the CDC who was really parsing President Trump's claim that, oh, you know, tests are free for everybody, which wasn't true in our fragmented healthcare system and sure didn't account for the difficulties of showing up in an emergency room and having to pay those bills. The second big concern I have, aside from the insurance cost exposure, is our lack of insurance for lost income. Because the amazing thing that I think we haven't paid enough attention to is that when you're sick, you're often also not earning income. And so it's a perfect storm of time when you have healthcare costs, but you have reduced income because you're, you're staying home or you're flat on your back in a hospital bed. So I think we've got to get, if we're going to continue having substantial cost exposures, we definitely also need paid time off in the United States, which 50 million Americans don't have. And so that really also makes me worry, even aside from that interaction between cost exposures and lost income, you know, that lack of coverage for paid time off, I worry is keeping, you know, phlebotomists or cooks or childcare workers who are, you know, making about minimum wage anyway, to go into work on those marginal days when they really would rather stay home, when they may be having a fever. They're nonetheless facing a huge economic pressure to show up at work to to literally put food on the table, and so I think our country's failure to invest and to require paid time off is is another huge failing that's gonna that's frankly gonna spread disease more than it
1: should in the United States. So I hear these arguments from the talking heads uh, in in the last couple of weeks, and nothing that I disagree with them, but I'm wondering how could you. Like they passed this $8 billion bill that addressed some very specific things. But how could you execute a policy tomorrow? How could they write something in the House and then, or put something together in the Senate and send it over to the House that could really address this problem? That in the moment that that person who is wondering, do I go to work today? If I don't go to work today, you know, I'm, I'm out $200, bucks. i am out. 250 whatever the case is, and if this happens in successive days, then I'm not going to be able to make my rent. How do you execute a paid time off program that can have an immediate effect? What would that look like? I'm in favor
2: of using the federal treasury rather than pressing mandates onto employers in part because employers, you know, there are small employers, a lot of them. It's a wonderful thing about the U.S. economy is it's based on, you know, a substantial number of mom-and-pop businesses or businesses with 10 employees. And and pushing those costs on them might just do more damage. We're just really moving the deck chairs from one person to another. The beauty of using the federal treasury is that we have a relatively progressive tax system, and thus the burdens can fall on the progressive tax uh, payers. And so, you know, in the past, you know, after the financial crisis 2008, we used the TARP fund, hundreds of billions of dollars went to banks to bail them out. So I think we can similarly um, bail out uh, workers who are staying home. And when they stay home, they're actually doing a lot of good for the public health. They're actually saving us from having the ration respirators that would otherwise be used in the hospital. And so... So I think the Treasury is the place to look. And I think then we just need to figure out the, the actual payment mechanism, whether that's through the IRS, whether it's by pushing money into the state unemployment systems, whether it's through instant tax rebates. Uh, I think there are a few mechanisms, mechanisms to actually get the transfers out. But again, I wouldn't wait on the transfers until you know next April 15th or something. We need partly that money to go out right away as a way to stimulate the economy. And that'd be the other benefit of this approach. Is, you know, dumping money into billionaires who who really can't spend anymore tomorrow is not going to have the same stimulus effect as sending money to the individuals who are really living at the margin and and can either put in that next grocery order or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, it would, to me, it would have to be something that would be instantaneous, you know, where you can register for something online. You, You say, I have a sick day, and and again, the mechanisms exactly how to have that transfer happen. But you know, if you if you're out two hundred bucks, two hundred fifty bucks, you're out a thousand dollars for the whatever the case may be. You should be able to if, for the policy to be effective. It can't just be a, through the tax system. It has to be something that cash is available today. Um,
2: and and we've done this before. We've done advanceable instant tax credits. Um, uh, the mechanisms do exist for this.
1: Okay. Good to know. So I, I, I saw my last question uh, around around this, and maybe maybe have one of our last questions for today. I saw that that a Gilead drug, antiviral drug, remdesivir, is being tested as a possible treatment for COVID nineteen. I saw where one patient to, to uh, intravenous. Antiviral, and where they'd given it under compassionate use to one patient, and that patient had gotten better. So, I'm with my understanding is that now they're undergoing some sort of clinical trials, uh, RCTs to ensure whether this drug works. My question for you is maybe the ethical side of this if this drug is successful, what are the implications for the pricing?
2: So, you know, you mentioned compassionate use. I just want to to flag that this is a program that the FDA has had for decades now, and it's been a, a remarkable example of regulatory flexibility, uh, where uh, the FDA can, uh, within days or in some cases hours, approve access to to drugs uh, that that are not yet open for the market generally. So, so then you know, flipping the the other side of your question, what's the what's the valuation of a drug like this? You know, I'm reminded of a, a few companies that that came out with Hepatitis C drugs a couple years ago, and they were priced up in close to hundred thousand dollars for a course of treatment. but you know that was a rational valuation in my book because um the cost of liver transplants and other uh treatments for that disease uh would be even higher and so I do you know as horrible as 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 drug pricing can seem sometimes. Uh, when you look at the value of what they provide, when it is a truly high value drug, I think we should be prepared to pay it. In contrast, there have been other cancer drugs that have come on the market at that same $100,000 for a course of treatment when they haven't even been proven to extend life by a single day for cancer patients. They just have a proxy benefit on progression free survival or something. So I do think we need to have a cold eyed look at the actual value they bring. And so here, I think a vaccine for COVID, I mean, there's literally trillions of dollars in economic loss that's happening right now as, as the US economy and the global economy is shut down. And so I would not mind at all if Gilead makes uh, humongous amounts of money on this drug uh, because it, it might well deliver that level of value. So I guess you've, you've seen the way I'm leaning, you know, although I'm a big critic of patient cost exposure. And a critic of, of of obscenely high drug prices that don't deliver value. When there's value there, we need to be prepared as a society to pay for it, just like we're prepared to pay for, you know, roads and billion-dollar bomber planes and, and and other
1: investments like that. Sure, sure. The thing that I struggle with, Chris, and I totally agree with you, by the way. I'm I'm aligned with where you're coming from. The thing that I struggle with is the polio vaccine right I mean effectively was given away that it was seen as a benefit as such an important benefit to society and we're going back a lot of years, and I wasn't even born then, but what when it when it originated, but I struggle with that because I think here is this you know altruistic move, and whoever i guess that was Jonas talk but, but it, say saying. A company had commercialized that in a big way could be making could have been making a lot of money off of that because the societal costs of having polio ripping through the the country were were starting to be astronomical. So how do you wrestle with that? You know, the ethics of that? So,
2: you know, if if we were talking about distributing a COVID vaccine to, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, I'd say, well. Let's adjust the price to uh, a level that ensures that we can, you know, reach levels of immunity that are necessary. And so in sub-Saharan Africa, the price needs to drop to nearly zero. But in a society like the United States, where we spend trillions of dollars on TVs and cars and washing machines and, and, you know, silly vacations, it would completely flip the incentives if we said, "Yeah, but for vaccines, we're not actually going to spend the money on it. We're going to force you to give those away for free. I think we've got to respect right. that that these pharmaceutical companies are our they are our machines of innovation and and we've decided not to invest centrally. Maybe we should have you know ten times larger n i h budgets and ten times larger barDA budgets. I'd support that by the way. But to retroactively say, thank you for inventing the vaccine with your private investment, but no, we're not going to let you recoup the value, to me, completely really undermines this powerful market-based mechanism we have created. So, you know, we can talk about how to remake the market going forward, but refusing to pay for value that's been created seems, you know, really backwards to me. As long as they're not trying to charge such a high price that it becomes a barrier to us socially purchasing it then then I think we need to be prepared to pay pay the value of the product but by then i'm I really just to emphasize I'm saying we should be willing to pay for it collectively using our progressive tax system. We sure shouldn't be imposing it on you know the individuals who we want to create every incentive for them to get the vaccine, so that's why. Preventative services like vaccines should have no co-pays or no co-exposures at all, because they're really, you know, getting the benefit not
1: just for themselves, but but for the herd immunity that benefits the larger society. Well, and you could end up with a one-two punch. So in this case, in the in the Gilead drug case, it's actually a treatment, not a vaccine. So for for the, I think beyond just the symptoms. So you could have a, a situation where you'd have an active treatment and then on the back end, be it when it's available in 18 months, whatever the timeline is these days, to vaccinate people uh, on mass at that time. Interestingly, you may or may not remember this, but the, the hep C example that you gave, <laughs> Gilead was, I believe, first to market in that $80,000 to $100,000 treatment range. And then eventually, the prices, I think the 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 rebated price for that category of drugs is somewhere between forty and fifty thousand dollars today, so it's come down and that's
2: partly because there are now at least two chemical compounds in that same space sort of the system is is working uh, we're getting a little bit of competition uh, between different chemical
1: compounds right right exactly. well listen, uh, I could keep going on uh, with you Chris It is a fascinating conversation, but I want to thank you again for spending some time with me. Chris Robertson's book is Exposed, Why Our Health Insurance Is Incomplete and What Can Be Done About It. I highly recommend it. It's a, it'll be a different type of read. There's a lot of books out there, on, and I've, I've read a lot of them on criticizing our healthcare system and what to, how to fix it, what to do about it. This takes an entirely different approach, so I, I highly recommend it. I'm a big fan of the podcast.
0: Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. That's all for this week. From all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. If you haven't yet done so, please rate and review Healthcare Rounds wherever you listen to podcasts. Healthcare Rounds is produced by Diana Nikolic and engineered by Andrew Rojek. Theme music by John Marchica. Darwin Research Group provides advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. To learn more about us, go to darwinresearch.com or send an email to insights at darwinresearch.com. Or if you'd like to get right to it, call us at 888-402-3465. See you next round.